Okay, assalamu alaikum everyone. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Welcome to um, an amazing Saturday session, inshallah. Um, thank you for, um, for staying with us um, while and waiting with us. Um, thank you for your prayers. It was a hard day today and we did have to start a little um, late because a, a shaykh is still struggling with pain, but thank you everyone who has been praying and um, wishing um, him strength and um, in healing, inshallah, inshallah, um, things will get easier each time I pray. Um, I just uh, wanted to share um, a really lovely email that I received recently. Um, these are, again, you know, I love sharing these messages because they give you a pulse on how people are responding um, to uh, the, the halakas. And um, for us, they're, they're just so touching and, and moving. And I feel like it's important since we are, um, we recognize that we're sort of a relatively small group at times, um, to feel connected to a community that I think appreciates the work that we're doing. Um, even though, you know, sometimes you, you see other Muslim, um, you know, uh, people or leaders have a lot more followers um, and you know we get a lot of questions like why is it that you know we only have a small number of subscribers but I really believe that the power of the message is so much more important than the numbers and inshallah I always believe that God will send people when they are ready at the right time because it's not a message that you know what we do here is pretty advanced it requires um, you know, I think a certain type of person um, who is, is ready to, you know, spend some time thinking about their relationship with God, um, who are looking for something more than what you find on social media, which is just a very um, superficial comment sometimes, um, or, you know, a, an identity or a persona. Um, it's usually for people who are looking um, for something deeper, and I think that's something that we, we offer here. Um, so this is a really beautiful message. Um, Salamu alaikum. I would like to introduce myself. I was born and lived in Belgium. I have been following your website and Instagram for quite some time and have seen that you do an English commentary of verses for quite some time too. I have been putting off watching your videos for quite some time. I wish I did not, but I did. I have just finished the first surah, Al-Hadid, for five hours straight and couldn't stop. I was so eager to learn more and more about your findings, your research, and the values of Islam and what the Quran teaches us. I'm a born believer and have lost my way several times now. I have been blessed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala who keeps helping me find my way back to Islam. I, was, I have always felt out of sync with a lot of Muslims, not liking what they say, yet I was always able to fall back on what for me summed up my meaning of what Islam through, the, what was my meaning of Islam through the five pillars of Islam, but also what I saw my mother do, which was always being kind and patient under any circumstance. I have always felt a disconnect when I read the Quran, which I realized was most likely me not putting my full heart in it. I have approached the Quran for far too long as a rational being, or maybe it's my Orientalist education and life, which had indoctrinated me into believing what most of the West thinks about Islam, or by just hiding my, um, my thorough self from the outside world. However, I have always felt a true connection with God despite not liking what a lot of my surrounding Muslims said about Islam or what Western society said about Islam. Yet despite firmly believing in Allah and Islam, I lacked a deep connection with the Quran when reading it. Anyway, all this to say that I have been touched and so moved by your work, I often get frustrated because I question everything. Quite a bit annoying, at least that's what my mom tells me, because every time I read something about Islam or in the Quran, I question it but never felt that my questions have been answered or didn't comprehend that if God was so merciful, 
Why does this not reflect in most Muslim countries, etc.? Anyway, again, I'm, I'm talking too much, sorry for that. When I followed your teachings in Surah Al-Hadid, I felt like every time I had a question, the professor was there to answer them. I love what you are doing and I and am hoping you'll be able to teach your findings with students, inshallah. Again, I'm truly happy I started this journey to understand the true meaning of the Quran. I'm excited to follow all of your commentary and inshallah will hope to meet you in person. May Allah bless and protect you and everything um, who is working so hard to make this project possible. So um, alhamdulillah, it's such a beautiful message and um, I you know, wanted to comment about a couple of things because I think it's a very common experience. Um, and certainly, you know, we, we do post um, a lot of quotes on Instagram and, you know, try and sort of um, increase our awareness for, you know, for Muslims that are out there because it's a challenge, I think, these days to, um, you know, figure out what is the best way to reach this particular audience. Um, and hopefully over time, you know, people will get interested enough and jump into um, a five or six hour halakha, which is extremely um, daunting. Um, but I think, I mean, alhamdulillah that, that this person, um, you know, took the jump and, and found it so valuable. And, and alhamdulillah, we've had other people that have, um, you know, written to us about that. And so I just, I mean, you know, I've gotten some messages recently by people who have found us um, not that long ago. And so I wanted to just say a couple of things because it is daunting when you see this entire, you know, um, library of content, all the YouTube videos huge websites with stuff, you know, it's like you start feeling like, oh my gosh, where do I start? What do I do? There's so much to do. And it's really important not to feel overwhelmed. Um, and I, you know, I recall like when I was starting this journey and trying to find Islam, you know, I think what would have been really valuable for me, I mean, I, I think what I want to say is we've covered now so much of the Quran and inshallah, you know, if you're just finding us, you'll, you'll find your way and, you know, take your time and, you know, don't feel overwhelmed. But, you know, there were a few heuristics or shortcuts or things that were, that I think are valuable to just keep in mind. And um, one is, and this is all stuff that you can come back and find the textual support for. Um, every Muslim here has dealt with Muslims that are frustrating and people who are not, you know, either rational or feel that they're too um, ritualistic. Um, but I think that what we're trying to emphasize here is the ethical message. And, you know, in any circumstance, um, the question for, for an individual is, you know, what is the most ethical way, number one, of approaching anything in life? And secondly, then, what is the most beautiful way um, because, you know, we've learned certainly in Surah Al-Abasa, you know, you can be good, you can be kind, but it's, you want to be good in the most beautiful way. And then, you know, thirdly, what would, since we know that God sees everything that you do and knows what's in your heart, whatever action you take, um, what do you think would make God the most proud? Assuming that you think of God as a loving God that wants to see you grow and wants to see you be your best self. And I think these are really important, simple questions that any human being can ask about, you know, how to be a good Muslim. Um, you know, we've learned in, in the last surah, um, like the basics in terms of ritual, in terms of trying to develop yourself. But, you know, taking a step back, it's, you know, when I was starting out on this journey, you know, one of the big questions that I had was, how do I really make sense of like being Muslim versus being a part of humanity and connecting with my dear friends who are not Muslim and who have no chance of ever becoming Muslim. And to this day, some of the most beautiful people that I know are not Muslim and may never be Muslim. But I look at them and I, and I think, you know, I love my friends that I've you know, kept as friends over the years. 
because they are the most kind, the most rational, the most generous, the most giving, you know, in, in ways that are really inspirational um, for any human being. And when you try to think about what it means to be a good Muslim, you know, like here we spend a lot of time kind of dreaming about, you know, what are the things that we want to achieve through this work? How do we want to touch people? How do we want to touch Muslims? Personally, I think about, you know, how do I want to empower my fellow Muslims, you know, to, to love this message and to love God and to love, you know, being and be, and be proud to be Muslim. And I, I often think about, you know, I, I wish that Muslims will take from what we do here and just feel like they can be the best of humanity, like my friends who are not Muslim, you know, like the ones that are super rational, super kind, super generous, and all of that, and understand that that is exactly what God expects us to be as Muslims, and that we should be on the forefront of that example. And it's, it's disappointing when you find Muslims that frustrate you because they're not living up to those standards. And I think sometimes, you know, we talk a lot about, you know, pietistic affectations, like people when they act a certain way, because, or look a certain way because they think that's what Muslims are supposed to do. But one of the things I think we're trying to reclaim here is something authentic and something that is genuinely beautiful and that arises from a common humanity that we all share. Something that other people, whether they're Muslim or not, can recognize and feel in their hearts. And, um, you know, so when, when I, like, think of these new Muslims who are just discovering us and wondering how do I proceed, how do, where do I go, what is it that I'm supposed to take away from here? I think it's something very intuitive, something very basic, something that you will find emphasized in every single halakha that we've done, every single khutbah, every single thing, is just to be on the cutting edge of what is the most beautiful, the most rational, the most kind, the most generous, the most you know, normal, um, you know, and not to be held back by what you perceive Muslims are supposed to look like, sound like, feel like. I mean, we're kind of going against the tide with what we're doing here. You know, we get a lot of messages from people about, you know, how could it be that a woman is speaking to you without wearing a scarf? How could it be that you have a dog in your midst? You know, how could it be that um, you know, the, the sheikh is drinking out of his left hand? You know, I mean, it's like crazy stupid stuff. And that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to replace with something that is actually authentic and meaningful, and that's something that I truly believe God actually cares about. You know, we have everything within our hearts um, and our minds to be the best um, and to, to be, you know, what we can make God proud to, to you know, say, okay, that's my, that's someone I love, that's someone that I hold dear in, in, in my, you know, in my eye, as we've learned about. And just to let that beauty guide you, even, you know, and, and all the knowledge that you pick up here through the halakhas will only emphasize that very beautiful, fundamental thing that every human being will recognize, Muslim or not. Um, and that's enough, and to, you know, to start with that and to build on that, and just to, you know, try and, um, you know, find your way, ask God to guide you, and to, you know, listen to and learn as much as you can. But ultimately, you know, just to rely on, on that part of your soul that's extremely beautiful, that can touch other human beings. So that's really all I wanted to share um, for, for people starting the journey. And may Allah always guide you, and um, may Allah help us and bless Sheikh and, and help us to continue this journey on the Quran. Um, and, and all of this knowledge will just help to sort of make all of us stronger and better human beings. So, inshallah. Thank you. Looking forward to another amazing halakha, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim.
سبحان الله العلي العظيم والحمد لله رب العالمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على محمد وعلى اله واصحابه وتوب باحسان الى يوم الدين اللهم يا علي عظيم اللهم لا تكلفنا الا وسعنا اللهم لا تؤاخذنا ان نسينا واخطانا اللهم لا تحمل علينا اسرا كما حملته على الذين من قبلنا اللهم لا تحملنا ما لا طاقة لنا به واعف عنا واغفر لنا وارحمنا أنت مولانا فانصرنا قوم الكافرين اللهم اشرح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري واحلل عقدة من لساني يفقه قومي إن شاء الله تدي وديم وصورة يونس Surah Yunus is a, a, a bit of a daunting surah, um, and um, it's one of these surah that uh, uh, the the main challenge for me is uh, a pedagogical challenge: is how how to present it, um, because it is. Um, uh it is a very layered surah and inshallah as i as i think you'll come to see and understand um that i even dare say that if you understand it's one of these surah that if you understand Surah Yunus and you inter internalize it, uh, and, and if you truly internalize it, you, you will be a transformed human being. It is just uh, inevitable. And if you're not transformed, that means you just haven't internalized it. Um, intellectual understanding is one thing, um, but not everything that passes through our intellect uh, affects our consciousness, leave alone our subconsciousness. There are a lot of things that uh, we process through the intellect, but our consciousness is something else. And if, as is the main challenge with the Quran, is that it it is not processed um, that you don't process the, the Qur'an simply on your tongue and you don't process the Qur'an simply through your intellect, um, but that you process the Qur'an through your heart and that it in fact then has a direct bearing on your consciousness and the way that you, you see the world and the way that you see the self and the way that you see others and the way that you understand reality and you understand what is beyond reality. Um, all of that is um, raised in, in various ways through the discourse of Surah Yunus. 
Surat Yunus occupies a rather interesting place because there are reports that claim that Surat Yunus is revealed pre-Isra, before the Isra and Maraj. And most, in my opinion, these reports are most certainly wrong. In my opinion, there is very little chance that Surat Yunus was in fact uh, revealed before the Isra. Uh, indeed, the much more likely scenario and where the evidence points out is that Surat Yunus is the first surah to be revealed right after the Isra. And this turns out to be quite important. And it's not just quite important because of Surat Yunus itself. And, and pay attention to this point because it's, I, I, I've not read it anywhere, I've not seen it anywhere, but you have the Isra, which we've talked about plenty of times, and we've dealt with Surat al-Isra itself. And we know that the Isra um, turned, was a turning point. It was a turning point because many of those who had converted to Islam apostated after the Isra. So it was a major test, a test that many failed. But we also know that after the Isra and Maraj, the persecution of Muslims escalated at a, a very alarming speed. And Muslims confronted some of the toughest um, periods in the history of the Islamic Dawah, the Islamic message. So, it is quite significant what Allah chooses to tell us right after this major test, this major trial of faith, the trial of an Isra al-Maraj. And as I said, the, the more credible reports, in my opinion, is that the first revelation indeed is Surah Yunus, right after the Isra. But then, right after the Surah Yunus, we have Surah Hud and Surah Yusuf. So we get this, these consecutive revelations, Yunus, Hud, Yusuf. And then after, Yusuf will get Surat al-Hijr. And after al-Hijr is al-An'am, which we haven't, we've dealt with al-Hijr, but we haven't dealt with al-An'am. Surat Yunus, Al-Hud, Surat Yusuf, uh, Yunus, uh, Hud, and Yusuf 
in, in, in many ways are a continuing theme. And it will take us some time before we are able to uncover what the theme, theme is, because obviously, you know, we're, we're talking about three long sore. Um, um, but there is a thematic continuity between Eunice, Hood, and Yusuf. And not only that, but I'll even go a step beyond this and say that those who understand the sequence of revelation between Eunice, Hood, and Yusuf, and what is being communicated, and how it's being communicated, and those who then understand what will take place in Islamic history later on, you would have to be pretty uh, a pretty obstinate, pig-headed human being not to believe. In this package, Isra, Yunus, Hud, and Yusuf is. Um, I mean, it is just, it, 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 you know, we often, we have often the Quran talk about how the um, polytheists demanded a miracle from the Prophet Muhammad but in the sequence of revelations is a miracle. And if you come to understand these source, you see it very clearly that it is a, it's a miracle and it is beyond what human beings can do because part of it involves actually knowledge of what will transpire in the future and how things will resolve and but you have to understand the thematic unity between these four and you have to understand how each surah sort of hands the baton to the next surah until you get the message communicated by Surah Yusuf. And then we get a number of surah that are um, the uh, a surah that, that set the framework for the social ethics of the new society in Medina. Okay, so there's going to be a, a, a great deal of, or a large number of issues that we will deal with in Surah Yunus and you, and if, uh, if you really want to get the full message, don't miss any of these Yunus, Hud, Yusuf. I don't know when Allah wants us to cover Hud and Yusuf, um, but I hope it's soon because I, I, th I think that, personally I think that the message is, is communicated by
Um, and inshallah, we, you know, once we get through this journey, I'll go back and I'll tie, I'll remind you of um, the thematic unity and the connections between these four. Um, okay, so Surat Yunus is the first among the six surah in the Quran that begin with Alif Lam Ra. And we've talked about Alif Lam Ra before. Um, and there's no point in, in repeating what we've said. But as I've noted before, that the the surah that starts with Alif Lam Ra um, seem to represent it's as if they're coded for um, what in law you would call, call the constitutional center of the Quranic text. You, you notice that the Alif Lam Ra define, not in a legal sense, but in a moral and ethical and theological sense, the constitutional center of the Quran itself, and the heart and pulse of uh, the Quranic revelation and uh, the Quranic message. And the other thing that is striking about Surah Yunus is that Surah Yunus takes us on a journey that for good two-thirds of the Surah doesn't mention prophets. But then towards the end of the surah, you have a mention of the Prophet Nuh the Prophets Musa and Harun, Musa and his brother, and the Prophet Yunus. And that's rather noteworthy, because whenever you see this in the Quran, then immediately you should reflect on, well, why these prophets? Why Nuh? Why Musa and Harun? And why Yunus? And especially that we know that Surat Hud will cover the same prophets minus Yunus, but from a very different perspective and a very different angle. Inshallah, as we'll, we'll see in, in due time. Um, so, that is something that should give us pause and should make us want to understand, well, 
why the, 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 the structure of the surah is as it is. Um, and what, what moral normative point is the surah communicating to its audience? So, Surah Yunus starts out, Alif Lam Ra, Tilka Ayatul Kitab Al Hakim. Like all the Alif Lam Ra, Surah Alif Lam Ra is followed immediately with a statement about the revelation itself. And the revelation, the very first ayah, is like a, a, a code. It's alerting you that yeah, these are, this is the book of Revelation, that's obvious, but there is a point of wisdom. And when I find the Quran alerting me to the issue of wisdom, I know then that I must understand the point of wisdom that Allah is inviting me to reflect on, or the, the, the points of wisdom. And it starts out in a fairly straightforward fashion. قَالَ الْكَافِرُونَ إِنَّ هَذَا لَسَاحِرٌ مُبِينٌ And we are told, this is uh, verse um, 2, we are told in the tradition that the occasion for revelation is that the uh, kuffar of Mecca um, used to say couldn't God have found someone other than an orphan to send as a prophet? Because, as you probably could guess, it was considered a deficiency in social status to be an orphan. Although the Prophet was from an honorable family, but the fact that he was an orphan uh, meant that he was not among the wealthy, he was not among the powerful, the, the, you know. Uh, th this, um, in the social mores of the day, was something considered problematic, and that then they would say, well, you know, if God really wanted to send the prophet, couldn't God send someone other than an orphan? And couldn't God have chosen one of the richer families in, of Mecca the only thing I, I want to say is about this is that although so many of the traditional tafsir tell you that this is an occasion for revelation, I don't doubt that this was one of the criticisms that the Meccans leveled against the Prophet and that this was an ongoing issue because it's raised in the Quran 
many times in different contexts. But I don't believe that this was an actual occasion for revelation. I mean, the, the problem with the, the expression occasion for revelation is that a lot of Muslims understand it as an event, the event that triggered the revelation. As if, as if but for this event, you wouldn't have gotten this surah at this time. And, and I think that's largely a fallacy, um, especially, 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 and I underscore this so that later on, because that will become a question I'm sure that one of you will ask later on, um, especially with Meccan Suwar, and the Meccan Suwar that are these sur that can be counted as Ummul Kitab, the, the Meccan sur or the sur in the Quran, whether Meccan or otherwise, um, that set the constitutional normative order for what Islam is and what the Islamic message is. Uh, when Surah Yunus starts out by saying the the trans just using again the, the study Quran and its translation. You know why is it that human? Why is it that people are so surprised? Why do they marvel at the fact that we chose a human being, one of them, to be the messenger? Um, What that there is a, a synchronicity and a correlation between that and the criticism that the Meccans made about the Prophet being an orphan, but I don't think that was the the, the occasion for revelation in terms of the, the trigger event, as is often stated. Now, so. We've encountered the Quranic insistence that Allah, in order to communicate with rational human beings, Allah sends a rational human being to communicate with rational human beings. We've encountered this before. We've encountered the Quran saying, indeed, that if there were angels walking on the face of the earth, then Allah would send an angel as a prophet. But that Allah sends with a prophet who is like those who are receiving the message. But here, the, the first part, we've encountered this before. Inzar is warn, and Bashir give good news. So we've encountered this as well before. And that all the messengers of 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, they are both warners and deliverers of good news. Uh, incidentally, in uh, refabricated Protestant Christianity, where in the old Catholicism, medieval Catholicism, there was such a heavy emphasis on the warning part and a de-emphasis on the good news part that post-reformation and especially with evangelical Christianity, the, again, the balance tipped to the other way to an extreme. So in that prefabricated or refabricated Christianity, the emphasis became on the good news part, so much so that the inzar part, the warning part, was sort of de-emphasized. So much so that I, I have to, you know, in a long journey, I have become convinced that very few Christians have actually read the Bible cover to cover. I, I, I am willing to bet if someone did an empirical study that they will discover that what most Christians know about the Bible is whatever selections and passages are chosen for them uh, by whatever church they belong to. Because I found, uh, even as a Muslim, ignorance of the actual text of the Bible shockingly widespread. It's just, Christians have no idea what their Bible says whether Old Testament or New Testament. Um, there are more, there, you, you are more, even the Islamophobes, you discover that they've actually tried to read some form of Quran from cover to cover, but they don't seem to have bothered to read the Bible from cover to cover. It's, it's very odd, very strange. But anyway, so, but it's, it's sort of an, an interesting point about the development of religion. Um, and something that the Quran itself, by the way, warns us about is that when human beings co-opt the divine message and reconstruct it uh, in order to project human psychological needs onto the divine writ and then either turn it, the divine message into basically just inzar, a set of warnings, or into just good news, rather than the balance, which is core to the divine message. Um, time and again, as the Quran, as, I, as we said before, the, the Quran never mentions hellfire without mentioning Jannah, and never mentions Jannah without mentioning hellfire. It is that mizan, that balance, that is core to what Islam is. And in fact, Islam in the sense of the primordial message of Islam, the, 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 the original Islam of Judaism, the original Islam of Christianity, um, the original Islam before human beings, you know, start messing around with it. Okay. But here, this expression that we, we just want to pause with for a bit. Anna 
the study Quran translates this Uh, that they have a station of sincerity with their Lord. Um, Qadama Sidq, it's a very, very literal translation to say a station of sincerity with their Lord. But it is also um, a very inadequate translation. Um, now, remember this again comes right after the Isra. And People after the Isra, as we said, many are, they, they're, they're troubled by the claim that the Prophet ﷺ went beyond the laws of physical nature and traveled to Jerusalem, etc. But it is one of the most profound Quranic expressions that whether the message that you are receiving is one of indhar, one of the warning, or one of good news, the one of tabshir. Uh, by the way, I just just uh, I just occurred to me. Do you know in Arabic, the word for uh, uh, proselytizing uh, um, or in, in evangelism, in the Arabic word for Christian evangelism is tabshir, which is the same word as bushra. Why? Because evangelists always claim to bring good news, but it is the same word. And the word actually goes back to Aramaic, so it's not even... Um, uh, but because I mean, yeah, it's just ignorance is an awful thing when you find you know just it's just shocking how many people just have have no clue and they they think they're 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 receiving something eye opening. But anyway, so whether you are receiving the warning or the good news, the, the bushra, the tabshir. Qadr Masuk is a remarkable expression connoting that it is in the balance between these two is the sure platform of truth. that it is, I couldn't, it, it, it is truly, it, it, um, it's very difficult to think of a more profound or eloquent way or a more succinct way of telling you that 
It is neither by good news alone, nor by indar alone, by fear alone, that you can attain this solid foundation with your Lord. But it is by understanding precisely the equilibrium between them, the true nature of the relationship between them. Put differently, it is as if your Lord is telling you, you know, if you're just going to focus on the tabshir, on the bushra, on the good news, you're going to go astray. And if you just focus on the fear element, on hellfire and all the punishment, you're going to go astray. But this is by understanding and by connotation, by understanding what will unfold in Surah Yunus, Yunus if not in all the Quran, but definitely in Surah Yunus. And this is why some commentators, when they said, they said, this is referring to Surah Yunus specifically. And other commentators said, well, why say it's just referring to Surah Yunus? It's just referring to the entire Quran. Those who said it's referring to Surah Yunus, what they meant by it is that Allah is alerting you to the importance of Surat Yunus itself in achieving this Qadr Masutq, this, this position of truthfulness and honesty with your Lord so that you, in approaching your face, you are a balanced human being, not lopsided, not skewed. And, of course, as we've encountered many times before, is that when you are intent on denying something, and as we will see in a second how the Quran elaborates upon this, but that you come up with anything to satisfy your ego in its insistence on statism, meaning its insistence on the principle of no change. I am comfortable in what I'm doing. I am being challenged. I don't want to engage the normative call, because the normative call can make me change, and I don't want to. So I can dismissively say, well, this is a bunch of hocus-pocus, this is a bunch of mythology, this is a bunch of magic, this is a bunch of sorcery, this is a bunch of... And as the Quran will say in a second, that this, these claims are not made on not made because after any serious engagement with the arguments of the Quran, but are knee-jerk reactions to maintain 
the status quo, whatever it is. Okay. But Allah, as we've seen before many times, will repeatedly, when Allah takes you back to this issue of balance, this qadr masirq, this, this literally position of being solidly stable with your Lord. And we'll see how Surah Yunus develops this, by the way. But this position of being on solid grounds, if I wanted to put it idiomatically, say like on solid foundations with your Lord. If the Quran wants, as, as Allah elaborates upon this point, then Allah brings you back always to what the Quran always brings you back to. And that's the created Quran. The heart and core of everything is you cannot understand the written Quran unless you also internalize the created Quran. I know that for modern Muslims, this is, has become very alien talk to them. But if only you knew your tradition. If only you, you knew your tradition. The created Quran is is necessary element, or is a necessary, I would even say, um, it's a necessary epistemology, if you want to use fancy words, for the written Quran. And in the created Quran, that Allah, and as we talked about before, the, the concept of six days, that they're not days in the sense of but six periods, because while in the Latinized Bible, as you know, Jesus spoke Aramaic, and from Aramaic, the, whether it was translated to Hebrew or translated to eventually from Hebrew to Greek and then from Greek to Latin and then from Latin to English, the, the concept of days became like human days. But in Arabic and in Aramaic, days are periods. They, they don't connote the 24-hour cycle. They connote periods. Um, I wonder if the, you know, what the original was, uh, because the, 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 the possibility that the original said that God rested on the seventh day is, is impossible. There is no chance that God would have said that. It's, but it's lost. It's lost because in, 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 Roman, in the Roman mythology, God's rested. And when I say Christianity was Romanized, that's a very big topic. But among the, among the issues is this, is that in, in Roman mythology, gods rested. All the pantheon of gods needed to rest. In the same way that they procreated, by the way. And in the same way that they ate and they drank and they did all types of things. Uh, but the Romanization of Christianity 
among the products of that was the idea of God needing to rest. Um, but anyway, um, and also it existed in Babylonian mythology, which passed from from Babylonian culture in, into the Old Testament. It's, it, it's um, okay. Anyway, so that God created the six the the the, the God created creation in these six periods, and but here we notice in Surah Yunus is that often when we have this introduction about creation, the Quran will then proceed to remind us of all the various blessings that Allah bestowed upon us. And, in, and Surah Yunus will do some of that, but, but not to the same extent as in other Surah. But the emphasis here in Surah Yunus is on something very interesting, on understanding the proper relationship between To put it in a word, the proper relationship between let's use it for now and 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 um, uh, qualify it later. The proper relationship between friends of God or potential friends of God, awliya illah, and especially in relationship to something that is very fascinating and that is especially in relationship to the concept of dharar, harm, as we will see. Now, if you're paying attention, you'd say, isn't that what's going to happen to Muslims? in their journey, they're going to confront a great deal of harm. After the Isra, their persecution is going to escalate. And the answer is yes, precisely. And Surah Yunus and Hud and Yusuf challenged Muslims to understand the harm that, that will befall them in highly elevated highly elevated and highly um in a highly um sagacious ways wisdom filled ways it is as if saying and I'm skipping ahead, but it is saying it's as if saying, you know, your Lord understands. Pain could break you, but pain could also elevate you. And it all depends on what you do with it. As inshallah we will see. So in 
in verse 3, the first thing that Surah Yunus will insist, other than reminding us of creation, is that مَا مِنْ you have to understand something about a relationship with Allah. Intercession as a matter of right or human privilege, that's history. Now, for your modern mind, because all of you are the product of the modern world, which literacy is fairly widespread and you know you, you don't you live in homes with amenities and things like that you say well yeah but what's the big deal well the big deal is that as we said before for centuries throughout humanity in the same way that people today tend to take god for granted and and make god pretty much as if God exists to rubber stamp whatever they desire and feel. You know, if you've ever if you've ever read the Bible, and the Bible is very clear about sexual relations out of wedlock. One of the one of the things that is like clear in the Bible. You know, one of the most puzzling things is how widespread in modern Western Christianity, people will be churchgoers. I know tons of people who are regular churchgoers, but have children out of wedlock. They go with their boyfriends and girlfriends and their children that they've had out of wedlock to church every Sunday. And it is quite rare, and I've actually attended many sermons in my day. Um, quite rare to hear a sermon in church anymore about sex out of wedlock. That's a product of the personalization of God and where God is no longer your supreme, but God is there to basically rubber stamp whatever you want. God has become a, your personal cheerleader. The, 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 the idea of the divine writ and the divine law had been deconstructed into pretty much nothing. So God is there, is there to love you and give you salvation. And in return, nothing. Just, God just loves you unconditionally, like your mother, your father, like, like the husband you want or the wife you want. The, the, you know, the boyfriend that you will never find and the girlfriend that you will never find. So you project it onto God, unconditional love. I can do whatever I want, but God will always love me. Because as human beings, that's what we fantasize. Love without responsibility. Love without responsibility. It's a very, very appealing idea. Um, but it's also a very problematic and a very morally troubling idea. 
you are loved whether you are a serial killer or whether you are the most, whether you're a Hitler or whether you are Stalin or whether you are, it's a very morally problematic idea. But nevertheless, there you go. You know, the, the, the human beings, as, as we will see in Surah Yunus, because Surah Yunus talks about this and warns us about all of this. SubhanAllah, I mean, so I'm actually not digressing, I'm just skipping ahead, and as I said, the challenge is in presentation. But at the same time, so the, the point about that I was making, yeah, that, that, but at the same point now, in the pre-modern mind, and I've talked about this before, Human beings had a very difficult time understanding or accepting that God can be approached without intercession. Why? I'm not being professorial, believe me, it's not like I, I want to, to, to complicate my halakas, but I just can't, you know, you, Muslims cannot be unintelligent. You know, you can't dumb down knowledge when it comes to Islam. You can't. So why was it that the idea that God was not accessible without intercession? Because human beings thought of authority in these terms. Authority was not something that was accountable to them. It, Greek democracy, by the way, was a myth because the Greek democracy was for a group of elite who were equally privileged. So they can all have a say, but the idea of democracy, the way we use it today, took centuries to develop. Why? Because the idea of demystifying authority, the idea that those who own the manor, or those who own the castle, or those who own the farm, or those who rule the kingdom, are actually just human beings just like me, took centuries to develop. So, and those who ruled often claimed degrees of divinity. And so the idea of an accessible God was very dangerous. People in power were terrified of the idea of an accessible God. That's why the Persian Empire mystified the idea of a deity to the point that it is truly inaccessible to us today. Zoroastrianism was reinvented after Islam, but original pre-Islamic Zoroastrianism, the idea of God was practically incomprehensible. So did Christianity, and so did Judaism. So, but even and this is like Judaism and Christianity and Zoroastrianism, but, but every religious creed 
always imagined that if rulers were not directly accessible, then how about God? And rulers themselves were very keen about supporting a priestly class that they would control, but that would maintain the mythology of intercession. Because it was the way that you kept the masses humble and complacent. When Islam came and said no to intercession, it was a revolution. Sitting today, us as a defeated people, as a colonized people, as a people who have been shamed for their authoritarianism, for a people who have been shamed for this, their despotism, as a people whose history is written by not them, but those who don't like them, as a people whose philosophy, uh, you know, the story of their philosophy, the story of even their law is written by, the, we, uh, as sitting here, as all that, we don't no longer understand the extent to which it was a revolution. But when Islam came and said, you know what, you don't need intercession, and in fact, no intercession, it was a revolution in the Near East. Mecca was, it's, Mecca, they were rational human beings. They saw the Prophet as a troublemaker because of the doctrines of Islam. So what happens to our priestly class? So what happens to the, the, the privileges that the priestly class has given to this tribe and this tribe and that tribe and this tribe? Privileges that go back centuries. And you're coming today and telling us all of that is just mythology and nonsense? And that uh, any Joe Mo can just sit there and just pray in the desert and access God? What type of world do you want us to live in? Yeah, I don't want to go off on a tangent, so okay, I'll, I'll restrain myself. <laughs> Okay, now note then Surah Yunus comes and says, okay, so no intercession except, and as will come in Surah Yunus, it, yes, it says, illa bi'idnih, min ba'di idnih in Surah Yunus, but that with his was God's permission, but Surah Yunus will say, if you claim God's permission, you have to produce evidence. We'll see that in a second. If you don't have evidence, you can't claim that you have God's permission. That was another revolution. Okay. So, then the second prong immediately is in verse 4. is that to all of you, 
you will come back and the Quranic insistence, not for the first time in Surah Yunus, obviously, but the underscoring yet again, the accountability is going to be according to qist, justice. No status, no race, no class, no gender, free or slave are the same. It is going to be a standard of qist. Now again, don't think with your modern mind where you take so much for granted. So much for granted that a lot of things have lost meaning in our life, including justice. We don't even know what it is anymore because we take it so for granted. But in the mind of this developing, evolving human being was, you mean my slave is going to be able to say, you've beat me X number of times and you were just letting off steam and you had no right to do it? Remember all the stories you learned from the Sira where the Prophet stands there and he tells common people, if I have offended you unjustly, exact your punishment from me. And he you know, uncovers his stomach. We read the stuff today and we say, oh yeah, that's cool. But you have to understand that historically, this, these were revolutionary acts. And by the way, if we understand them for what they are, they're still revolutionary acts. It's just that Muslims today, they like read these as bedtime stories, and then they go worship their leaders in Iran and Egypt and Syria and Jordan and, you know, and, uh, 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 but no serious Muslim will insist on a leader that they can exact this type of justice from as much as they insist on the hijab, for instance. I mean, they'll have epileptic fits about whether a woman is covering her hair or not, but they won't care whether their leader is yet another pharaoh. You know, maybe that's why I'm, never, I'm, I'm gonna leave this world unpopular, but in my view, that's corrupting Islam beyond repair. That's not the religion that was given to us. Okay. Then, after this quick affirmation of these revolutionary pillars, accessibility of the divine, the overwhelming principle of qist, of justice, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then moves to um, the created Quran with again a brief elaboration. One of the um, One of the things that I, I just, uh, uh, Surah Yunus says so much. Okay, 
But among the things that I, I, I should flag so I, I can sleep at night is that I, I forgot to mention this, but with, on the issue of Qadr Masudq, a sure stand or a steadfast stand with your Lord. Um, Surat Yunus will, as I said, will talk about the friends of God. And especially in Sufi-esque literature, there is some of the most um, profoundly eloquent discourses on why is it that it is part of Allah's sunnah in creation that human beings have a very difficult time recognizing the friends of God, awliyaullah, or even if they recognize them, treating them properly. And it's a, it's a discourse that as modern Muslims we're not often exposed to. Um, uh, or, you know, if we're exposed to it where we, because of the, of the nature of the material presented where, where, you know, we read it as these sort of outlandish stories from Sufi circles. But, um, part of Part of the, in order for choice to be preserved, in order for beauty to remain preserved, it cannot be corrupted by egoism. And so there is a wonderful discourse just usually that centers around the very beginning of Surah Yunus um, about not just that the, the secrets of developing a relationship of closeness to Allah that you become as if a friend but how you go out of your way to not bring attention to this relationship. And in fact, if you find someone that brings attention to this relationship, then they're, they're nobody. That in fact, they're not a friend of God. Um, so, you know, if you find someone who claims to be a Sufi and they go around like a rock star, um, then that's a pretty sure bet that they're a false friend um, or a TV star in our days or a social media star. Um, the nature of wilaya, the nature of wilaya 
is self-effacement and dissimulation. Yeah, in fact, you you can reveal it to those who deserve to know it, but those who don't, you don't. The other thing that I'll note in Ihya Ulum al-Din, Ihya Ulum al-Din, in the part where Sheikh Ghazali talks about, or mentions, um, it's been years since, of course, I've read this, but if my memory serves me right, where he talks about the beginning of Surat Yunus, and um, and I mention this because Ihya'ul-Medin has been translated to English, so you can actually read it for yourself if you don't know Arabic. Uh, that the relationship, again, and this is all around the concept of Qadam Sidq, is steadiness of uh, the, the steady platform that you stand on, is how there are those who forget God, and so God causes them, or then allows them to forget themselves. But there are those who are even worse than that, who claim to remember God, but their entire remembrance of God is really just a remembrance of the self. They, they inflate the self and make it the center point of the remembrance. So really their remembrance of God is nothing but a form of egoism. And Imam uh, al-Ghazali talks about how that in both cases, the fate of both these types of people is that they become as if baha'im or worse, um, uh, like cattle. Uh, but, uh, yeah. But then in the Ihya, it talks about how the second type, the one that that inflates the ego and, uh, and so on, um, that they are worse because they are become like cattle that become sickly and spreads a disease among the flock. Um, if I could remember what volume it's in, I would have told you, but I, I'm, I'm sure if you look for it, you'll find it. Just if you, if you buy the Hiyat that was published, um, translated by Islamic Text Society, and just look in the index for Surat Yunus and you'll find it. Um, okay, let's move on. So now we're at five, verse five, that Allah who has created Ash-Shams, Diyah, Wal-Qamar, Noor God who made the sun 
the uh, study Quran say is, uh, is translated as radiance and the moon a light. وقدره منازل لتعلموا عدد السنين والحساب ما خلق الله ذلك إلا بالحق يفصل الآيات لقوم يعلمون إن في اختلاف الليل والنهار وما خلق الله في السماوات والأرض لآيات لقوم يتقون Don't think I'll, I'll know about this in, in Sufi well, Two things actually I'll in Sufi esque literature, this, as you, you, I, if you've been following after Fasir, you know that um, when they talk about Shams and Al Qamar, it's, it's always understood metaphorically. Um, but even out beyond the Sufi esque tradition, um, one of the, the, the most fascinating things is, and we've encountered this before, is that when you say al-shams diya, according to a medieval dictionary like Taj al-Arus, diya is something that emits light of itself, while nur is something that reflects light but doesn't generate it from itself that's why a human being would have inur not diya because the light that you have as a human being is said to come from god not that you generate that light but you simply reflect the light now of course in in our in the modern world it's remarkable because you know, for a medieval text to make that distinction that the sun actually generates light but the moon just reflects light that's pretty remarkable whether you believe in in the whole science of the Quran or not but it, just objectively I think that's quite remarkable um, the other thing that is worth noting uh, about the um, the Sufi tradition I think we had a question before about the maqamat that the stations that the Sufis often talk about. And in um, Tafsir ibn Ajiba, I just found a quick reference to the maqamat which I couldn't remember. Um, so, At-Tawbah, Wal-Khawf, Wal-Raja, Wal-Wara, Wal-Zuhd, Wal-Sabr, والشكر والرضا والتسليم والمحبة والمراقبة والمشاهدة. So the translation, rough translation, but I'm not going to spend a lot of time on them because this would take us. You, you could spend months just talking about each maqam. التوبة والخوف is as and we've encountered this before that you start out with repentance and learning reverence of God or the fear of God Raja is the best way to translate it is to learn to trust and to count on God Walwara is 
the internalization of your awareness of God. Zud is to learn to de-emphasize the parts of you that are materialistic. Zod is not necessarily that you go without anything or property, but Zod is that material things are pulled out of your heart. Uh, what summer is uh, patience and endurance. What shukr rida, shukr is which is often described as one of the most challenging maqam, uh, is to learn the meaning of gratitude. Because we are often not grateful until we don't have something. And it's a very infantile way of learning gratitude. The, the, when a, a very undeveloped human being, they can only be grateful for something when they lose it. So I don't know the, you know, how to be grateful for my eyesight unless I become blind. Uh, that's, a, that's how a, the, an infantile, undeveloped psychology works. But when you learn gratitude, you don't have to be denied something to learn to be grateful for it. Warrida uh, is to learn satisfaction and acceptance of God's will. What Taslim wal Mahabba. Taslim is precisely surrender, where you surrender your affairs to the one and only, as the one and only, meaning the one and only. Al Wahid al Ahad. In, in, um, Everything else is but a delusion. So you only surrender to the you surrender to the only real thing. And al mahabba is love. At that point, then you are ready to love because you're not going to fall in love with yourself and then project it onto God. But hopefully you will actually fall in love with God as God and you will be ready to receive the enlightenments of God, um, which then gets you ready for the, the stage of al-muraqaba or al-mushahada. And that's when you are receiving the futuhat. That's when Allah allows you to experience something of the, the divine blessings in illuminations and light. Um, the light becomes something that you don't experience, you know, once in a, in a, on, a, on a miraculous occasion, but pretty much something that you can experience whenever you humbly call upon God. And the light uh, propels your consciousness to something completely different. Because then you understand things like dimensions, like time and space, and so on. But it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's, again, it's very interesting that in Surah Yunus, 
which in the Sufi tradition they often talk about why it was very important that it came after the Isra. Um, you have a lot about that. Okay. So, in the Ladina Amen, Wamil Solihati, Yadim Rabum, be in Nanihim, Tajim, and Tahtimul and Harfi, Janatin Naim, Dawatum, Fia Subhanahuahum, or Tahiatum, Fia Salam, Wahiru Dawahum, and Alhamdulillah, Hirobil Alameen. This verse 10 is among the most beautiful duas that um, you learn, and that's by the way the dhikr for the surah. دعواهم فيها سبحانك اللهم وتحيتهم فيها سلام وآخر دعواهم أن الحمد لله رب العالمين. So verse nine, we understand that Allah is talking about the Jannah, but look at the way verse ten. Allah elevates those who are ready for an elevation, for this type of elevation, for a, for a more mature understanding of Jannah. fiha subhanak. This is ten. We, we've talked about tasbih before, right? And that Tasbihullah wa tanzihullah, that you are, you understand the singular glory of Allah, the unlikeness of Allah to, to anything. Well, in Jannah, to attain an understanding for in what way Allah is the center of all of existence and is the only reality in existence. What you receive in return for this understanding is something that the human soul lives coveting from the moment of consciousness to the moment of death, attaining it only perhaps a few times or on rare occasions, but not ever completely and thoroughly. And what you attain is salam. It's true peace and harmony. In Sufi Ask literature, there is a great deal written about why it must be so that absolute, true, pure salam can only be attained with perfect knowledge. But that perfect knowledge is not possible in the temporal plane. Without perfect knowledge, then whatever peace you imagine 
is also an incomplete understanding of peace. Because you, even if you surrender to the divine will completely, you don't really understand why this child died in this country, why these people drowned in the sea, why there was a volcano, or you, you don't. And so, you don't understand what true peace is, because not all the pieces of the puzzle come together. But here, it is where in Surat Yunus is in, in several places after the Isra, where the Quran gives hints that there is a perception of Jannah that is as material as those who, you know, set their heart on material things. But that's not the real attainment. Now, of course, in the traditional tafsir, they say that the angels will stand and greet you with peace. But as, again, in the Sufi tradition point out, well, that seems to be a mere formality. How much pleasure or how much happiness or how much tranquility is that mere formality will bring you if all is happening is that the angels are there just standing and saying, oh, peace. But, and their greeting is peace. It comes from the, from which is the same word from which the word life. So the very source of life for them will become that peace. That this is the, the, the stage where hamd, where gratitude and thanks to Allah becomes inseparable from inner peace. So this is why, and again, I, I'm just passing, you know, just flagging these things because I want to get to the whole, you know, the, the, the overall point of Surat Yunus, if we're able to, inshallah. Um, um, Sufi asked Tafasir, and I and I and I think this is in. Well, Sufi asked Tafasir. I, I, I don't want to because I can't remember where I. That often mention that a story sometimes attributed to a prophet, sometimes attributed to one of the Sufi masters, sometimes even attributed to a. a a Jewish um, um, worshiper, meaning of ancient times, that this man, whoever that man uh, was, 
starts pondering the fact that they that he often disobeys God and God doesn't punish him and that he often commits sin and God keeps giving him and he finally sits and talks to God and says and say you know I I don't get it why is it that I keep disobeying you and you keep giving me and this is this is not the way we understand how you deal with others and finally Allah answers in this you know narrative that finally Allah answers this person whether whoever that person was it says it is because and this became by the way like one of the mantras in Sufism is because inni ana wa anta ant this is because I am who I am and you are who you are so in the Sufi path do you see how much Surah Yunus has inspired in the in the tradition of Islamic um, spiritualism in the Sufi past the goal is to internalize this so that understanding how to be more like the divine self through the sifat through the attributes of Allah is the aspiration so you know that Allah continues to bless although Allah continues to be disobeyed and Allah continues to give although Allah continues to be disobeyed and Allah continues to be good although people are consistently not good with Allah and so that becomes the Sufi aspiration. A long time ago, I was uh, uh, attending a halakha and one of my teachers said, um, only the most fortunate of human beings can understand and fully internalize this lesson. Um, and he said also, he just stayed with me, Anyone of you that will claim that they've comprehended that lesson um, before they are old men um, is probably a liar. Just stay with me. Man, uh, I, I can't believe we just did 10, ten ayat. Do you, do you see my dilemma? I, I want to speed up. I really do. I, I just... Uh, the people here are, are, are not happy that I said speed up. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. 
Subhanallah, I mean, it, it, it's been two hours and only then I had, and still, I, I forgot something. On ayah 7, والذين هم عن آياتنا غافلون أولئك مأواهم النار بما كانوا يكسبون This is 7 and 8 And as just given mashallah we'll come to the end and I will pull the entire surah together for you but for now just all the, the necessary building blocks um, this was in Surat Yunus was the first time that the Quran starts building upon a very important theme that there is something more than simply a reward or punishment in the hereafter. So there is justice, accountability, but the thing that is more is whether you as a human being in fact, start reflecting and gaining an understanding of the fact that you came from something truly magnanimous, and that is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that you will return to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and that in this concept of coming and return is a, as simple and straightforward as it is but just reflect upon it just put it you know make it a homework to reflect upon the idea of meeting Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala meeting your maker we, we've turned it into something of, a, uh, of just an idiomatic expression, meeting your maker, and often we've even turned it as an equivalent to the idea of death. And it, it doesn't raise anything uh, elevated in us. But that those who have become settled in life on earth and have psychologically accepted the idea that life on earth is their home and they feel no sense of alienation because they don't miss Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and when Surah Yunus in ayah number seven, when it that it warns 
that those who have become settled to life on earth and acquiesced in, in, in the idea that life on earth is, is the beginning and end all, and that they don't actually long for their Lord. They don't long to meet their Lord. Um, Muslims became concerned because they said, well, what if we try, but we don't have that feeling? And then the Prophet ﷺ reminded them that Surah Yunus, in the same ayah, say, وَالَّذِينَ هُمْ عَنْ آيَاتِنَا غَافِلُونَ That it's not just you don't long, but you have become also oblivious to the messages of your Lord. And then the Prophet ﷺ elaborated upon this when he sort of the Prophet summarized the whole concept in a very important hadith that um, I, I, you know, I wish we would teach to our children in the right way. And this is the hadith that's been reported in, in cumulatively, that whoever loves when ahabba Allah, ahabba Allahu that whoever loves to meet Allah, Allah will love to meet him or her. And whoever doesn't love to meet Allah, Allah will not love meeting him or her. And that's as, of course, as you would expect, it's a Sufi-esque tafsir that, that take this to a higher, uh, I mean, write quite a bit about it. But the idea of disciplining the self to A, not accept life on this earth as the end all and not accept a sense of settlement in life on this earth that this is home. B, to try to wean into the self, miss Allah. Imagine what it would be like if death for you is not death, but it's the beginning of an opportunity to actually meet the beloved. Your whole outlook shifts. It's like, I miss, I miss you. I miss you because I feel you. I miss you because I felt you all my life. And when I die, I know that, and this is where the, your certitude starts developing at another level. When I die, I, I'm not gonna worry about, you know, my understanding of heaven and hell it, it, what the nature of material things will be, what the nature of fire will be, what the nature of rivers will be, what the nature of honey will be, what the nature of wine will be. I'm not going to, that's not where I'm going to put my energy. 
I'm going to put my energy at the simple fact that you are my maker and I am from you and I return to you and I miss you. In the Sufi tradition, they always say that this is the beginning of maqam al-hub. This is the, the beginning of the station of love. When you want to learn to love Allah, you first start on the azkar, um, uh, the azkar of longing, the azkar of, of, of missing. The, I miss you, Askar. Um, but even beyond the Sufi tradition, I mean, this is even in traditional Islam. Uh, I don't recognize, I don't know any traditional source that, that denies the authenticity of this hadith, or the, the, especially that this hadith is mentioned in the context of Surah Yunus. And it came shortly right after the Isra, where the Prophet ﷺ with the people who stayed Muslim is saying, okay, because you, you keep in mind another thing, we, the, the Isra became so mythologized that all these traditions about how the Prophet ﷺ goes and he visits hell and then he sees people being tortured this way and people being tortured that way and people tortured this way and the vast majority of these ahadiths are not authentic. And, but yet, we raise our children, teaching them about the Isra and saying that, you know, this is what they learn. But what they don't learn is, in fact, what, what followed the Isra is that now you are the, 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 the true believers who are willing who accepted, know that this is a truthful prophet, and that the prophet would not lie. If the prophet says, Usriya bi, Usriya bi. That if the prophet was, went on the Isra, that mean. But that the prophet didn't come back, والسلام, to regale them with tales of uh, the tortures and hellfire, as happened in, as in the, the, you find in the, especially in the Christian tradition, which at that time Catholicism was all about indhar, about warning, not about good news. Um, but in fact, what the focus after the Isra was, understand that the Isra is a journey of, from the lover to the beloved. And that's why in Sufi literature, the Isra has a huge and great symbolism. Okay, then we'll go to now I told you that Surat Yunus was one in the beginning of the, the, the dynamics of Dor, of harm. And 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then starts immediately after this, as you know, it took us two hours just to cover these verses because they are very layered concepts that engage the believer in an elevation of the spirit to then talk about the very core issue that is about to confront Muslims Allah is aware of it, but they're not necessarily aware of it. And that is the test of harm. وَلَوْ يُعَجِّرُ اللَّهُ لِلنَّاسِ الشَّرَّ اسْتِعَجَالَهُمْ بِالْخَيْرِ لَقُضِيَ إِلَيْهِمْ أَجَلُهُمْ فَانْدِرُ الَّذِينَ لَا يَرْجُونَ لِقَاءَنَا فَنَظَرُوا أَسْفَ فَنَظَرُوا الَّذِينَ لَا يَرْجُونَ لِقَاءَنَا فِي طُغْيَانِهِمْ يَعْمَهُونَ وَإِذَا مَسَّ الْإِنسَانَ الضُّرُّ دَعَانَا لِجَنْبِهِ أَوْ قَاعِدًا أَوْ قَائِمًا فَلَمَّا كَشَفْنَا عَنْهُ ضُرُّهُ ضُرَّهُ مَرَّ كَأَنْ لَمْ يَدْعُنَا إِلَى ضُرٍّ مَسَّهُ كَذَلِكَ زُيِّنَ لِلْمُسْرِفِينَ مَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ ولقد أهلكنا القرون من قبلكم لما ظلموا وجاءتهم رسلهم بالبينات وما كانوا ليؤمنوا كذلك نجد القوم المجرمين ثم جعلناكم خلائف في الأرض من بعدهم لننظر كيف تعملون So let's take 11 and Yeah, 11 and 12 first. So, here you get reports that, again, claim that the occasion for revelation is that Mecca suffered a seven-year drought and that the the drought was quite severe and caused Meccans a lot of hardship. And that they went to the Prophet and said, pray to your God to bring the drought to an end. And the Prophet indeed prayed that the drought would end and it ended. But once the drought ended, they, of course, said, went back and said, well, you know, thanks for nothing. This was just nature uh, or this was our gods or in other words, they reneged. And again, I, I don't doubt the authenticity of the historical event. I mean, it, it, it's not at all surprising if, if in the polemics of the time, if Meccans would go to the prophet and say, well, if you're a real prophet, why don't you bring an end to this drought? And then the drought ends and they say, well, no, it's not. You didn't do it. Uh, you know, our gods did it or whoever did it. That's very consistent with human psychology and the way human beings work. Um, you know, they, they'll, they'll pray for something, they'll get it, and they'll come up with whatever reason about why they got anything other than what they initially were saying. But I think when 
people focus, as traditional tafsir do, on this as being the occasion for revelation, they take away an important message, especially why now we're at verse 11, and we will see that from verse 11 to verse 100, when we start talking about the prophets Nuh and Musa and Yunus and the theme of harm is consistently in Surah Yunus, then, then you miss the point because you, you think that the occasion is just to Tom Atkins, you know, shame on you, you prayed for the end of the drought and it ended and then you reneged. But it's, so while I, I think that these verses apply to the historical event, I don't think that these were that was the occasion for revelation, as is often claimed. But rather, what Surah Yunus then starts engaging the audience of the Quran to reflect on is the very idea of harm, and it starts out by a. Something that, that is a bit of a challenge to, for people to truly theorize and, and, and comprehend. And that is, if, or it's as if saying, if only you knew what follies Allah saves you from. That, and here is, a, is an important point, interestingly raised in more philosophically oriented texts like the works of Qadi Abdul Jabbar, for instance, is that human beings are often, they're happy, of course, when, when good, good things happen to them, and when bad things happen, they're often traumatized, bothered, uh, and quite frequently, frequently blame God for the suffering, whatever the suffering is. But the reality is, if you take the external view of things, and you will find that human beings' perception of good and bad is incomplete and myopic in that they often want what is good for them and wish bad on others or at least don't care if bad befalls others. So whether if, if you take the, the God view of things, so the God view of things is God is hearing human beings constantly have gripes, have grievances, have uh, vengeance, want to wish, wish harm upon the other. And if God would listen in fact, to human beings and treat human beings equally. 
the earth and life on earth would have been, come to an end a long time ago because the amount of evil that human beings wish upon one another is truly astounding. So, while evil or bad things occur, but God is constantly softening the impact or intervening to save human beings from their follies. And their follies is not just the way that they plan and, and, and plot against each other, but from what they wish and hope for, for one another. Now, in more advanced thinking, like the, the thought of Mullah Sadr and so on, like for instance, the, the folly of inequality, that those who have, those, those who think about the unfairness of, inequ of, of inequality are often those who do not have, but once they have, they suddenly become not troubled by inequality. And that no thinking about the nature of good and bad can be mature or real unless it takes that holistic view of things. But the crux of the matter is this relativistic and self-centered attitude. And the self-centered attitude is what is the muscle insan that when a human being suffers, says says ouch, a human beings or longs or desires. Now contrast this between longing for utility versus longing for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is a point that always often noted by Sufis, but anyway. That human beings then becomes fervent in their dua, and fervent, they, they remember God as if God is a close companion, a close buddy, as if they had God consciousness all along. And so much so that whether they, it will become as if they're, whether they're lying down, whether they're sitting, whether they're standing up, take any human being with all their, you know, uh, who is, and here is an important concept, who is an agnostic. An agnostic in the non-philosophical sense, in, in the sense that uh, the more um, people like uh, Zamakhshari or people like Qadi Abdul Jabbar, they, 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 is those who are non-committal about God. It's like, well, they claim an open mind, but in fact, their open mind is a lack of commitment. So that agnostic 
is full of skepticism. And that skepticism makes them treat God as a Rabb, but not as an Ilah. Remember, we talked about this. As a Rabb meaning as you are there as a God to give me, but not an Ilah. You're not there as a God to demand of me. And if they feel that God demands of them, even if it is for the good of others, they're on guard. Really? Why? Is this really your law? Is this really your will? Is this really what's good? Is this really your, you know, so on. But if it is something that will benefit them, they're far more relaxed. Now, that agnostic, from the time of the Greeks, when the Gnostics used to criticize the agnostics, as Qadi Abdul-Jabbar points out, that the thing that the Greek believers used to criticize about their agnostics is their their hypocritical selves. If that they are nonchalant and non-committal and claim open mind, but the one time they become fervent about the presence of God is when they're in trouble. So take any person full of skepticism. You know, they have a good job, whatever. Suddenly, their mother falls ill and uh, is on their deathbed. Or suddenly their child falls ill as on, on their deathbed. Or suddenly they discover they have an incurable cancer and so on. And suddenly they are fully God conscious. But that lasts only as long as that need lasts. And that is why كَذَلِكَ زُيِّنَ لِلْمُسْرِفِينَ مَا كَانُوا يَعْمَلُونَ Musrifin here, they translated in the study Quran as yeah, pro prodigal. Um, the Musrifin here are people of inequity. They are people of fundamental inequity in their character. So, of course, the, the implication to the Muslim is that if your relationship to Allah is guided by the same logic, i.e. you are yourself a Musrif, you are very close to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in hardship and you're very clear-minded about Allah's truth and about the hereafter and so on at times of hardship. But then you quickly find yourself that your heart drifts away as long as the hardship is removed. Or all your pettiness and all your complaints and all your, you know, 
self-indulgences return. Now here, it is the case that you are not on a Qadr Masidq, you are not on a steadfast platform with your Lord. Remember at the beginning of the surah? And that you are not among those who actually Allah, that you are not among those who loves meeting your Lord. The nature of the Musraf is that indeed God is there as a functional source to perform a function, but nothing beyond that. The problem, whether you need God to give you power or to give you money or to give you health or to give you career or to give you marriage or to give you whatever you want God to give you, the problem is the relationship with God upon which everything else is going to be built is not on a stable, steadfast platform, Qadam but then Surah Yunus takes you from the personal to a further view. And that it started to talk about what happened to communities. Now just keep, pay attention to this and because we're going to come back to it. So it says, don't forget that Nations before you, nations before you were destroyed, and here's one of the, the, the interesting grammatical debates and, and, and point of tafsir. Lamma zalamu. You notice here it says, Lamma zalamu waja'athum rusulun bil bayinat. So we've destroyed past nations when they committed zul, when they were unjust, and where and their prophets came to them with the truth, with the message, and they rejected them. And the debate is about the, the where here, is that, is it that they were unjust because they rejected the prophets, or is it that they were unjust and they rejected the prophets? Now, the best thing that I've read on this point is of course those who, in my view, understood precisely, is that the prophets are there, among other things, with and core to their message is justice. So for you, there's no way of accepting the prophets 
and feel injustice. Something that I wish modern Muslims would understand. That if you truly understand the message of the Prophet, it is the message of Allah, and Allah is justice. So you can't say, oh, I accept Allah's message, but just injustice doesn't trouble me. As we will see, actually, in the rest of Surah Yunus. So, then comes the challenge. And remember, these are persecuted Muslims. I mean, they, 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 don't, this, they don't have a, a, you know, those who have even immigrated to, to, to Ethiopia hasn't happened yet, or Abyssinia, it's about to happen. But then it comes and tells them, and made you the inheritors to see what you will do. So a lot of the traditional tafsir paused at this and said, well, it must be talking to the Meccans. Because how could it be talking to Muslims when Muslims haven't inherited anything? But I think they miss the point when they do that. Because remember, what we said before, time and space. Allah is, in retrospect, we know that Allah was telling Muslims, you will inherit. But don't you dare be like these past nations who've corrupted the messages of their prophets and have become unjust. I'm, I'm sorry I flipped pages, but because uh, of the, the illness uh, before the halakha, I'm like forced to sit and just jot down whatever I can remember. Um, and, you know, the way memory works is not very organized. وَإِذَا تُتْلَى عَلَيْهِمْ آيَاتُنَا بَيِّنَاتٍ This is 15. بَيِّنَاتٍ قَالَ الَّذِينَ لَا يَرْجُونَ لِقَاءَنَا اِئْتِ بِقُرْآنٍ غَيْرَ هَذَا أَوْ بَدِّلْهُ قُلْ مَا يَكُونُ لِي أَنْ أُبَدِّلُهُ مِنْ تُلْقَاءِ نَفْسِي إِنْ أَتَّبِعُ إِلَّا مَا يُوحَى إِلَيْهِ إِنِّي أَخَافُ so what is the relationship in 15 and 16 to what comes before? If you're not paying attention, you'll miss the relationship. Right away, the Quran comes and says that, remember that those, this, 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 inequitous relationship with the divine, this highly personalized relation, or sorry, this highly egocentric relationship with the divine is a problem in that relationship where, well, I need God when I'm in trouble. It is a problem. And in fact, 
people without, and here's the key, people without ethical standards based on divine command are people who are inequitous because they think it is up to them whether they have justice or injustice, as if injustice can be fine with God. But in fact, the divine command doesn't give you that choice. The divine command makes justice an imperative, makes morality an imperative, makes ethics an imperative. You are not free to mistreat a race, you are not free to mistreat a class, you are not free to mistreat a gender because it is more convenient or it is what, you know. And you are not free to deify your rulers and you're not free to claim that people are not equal, i.e. the concept of intercession. You're not free. That is the whole point of ethics based on divine command. And those who then rejected that and brought back injustice, God replaced them. Now, it's your turn. But there is a problematic. Is that in the same way that there were those who thought that the Isra and Maraj was about the prophet as a person, that this was like about a miracle, like the old biblical miracles of the old, of the Bible. The Quran comes basically and says it is not about the prophet. How many times does the Quran say, "What if Muhammad dies?" Muhammad is just a man. It is not about the Prophet. And the point about this thing, the Meccans come to Muhammad and say, okay, we don't like this in the Quran, we don't like that in the Quran, and what is it that they don't like? What is, what is it that the reports tell us that they don't like? What they don't like is precisely the idea that the elite cannot be the elite and that the slaves are equal to, to the free and that the honored Arab tribes are equal to the every other, there's there no difference between an Arab and a Persian or, or, an, or a black and white. Or, that's, this is precisely what they don't like. And we've encountered before when they tell Muhammad you know, okay, exclude the poor people and, and we'll sit and talk to you. And the Quran comes and says, you can't do that. No way. Not even open to negotiations. And we've encountered in Abbas when the blind man that comes in to talk to the Prophet, the blind poor man, that comes, and again, the Quran comes and it's early on. And of course, Mecca is, is, is deeply offended by that. And so they come to the Prophet and say, you know, okay, change this, change this. And, and we, we can find common grounds. And the Quran comes 
and affirms this precisely this thing about the ethical order based on divine will that it is not up to you Muhammad and tell them that it's not up to you I can't change anything I can't it is not up to me to make deals with you and yes I know that as things are going turning grim to Muslims I mean they need a break they need any type of negotiated deal to give them a break there are people who are being tortured to death and people who are being to starve to death and we all know the stories about after the death of Khadija and the starving of Muslims and they would starve so badly that their stomachs would blow up with gas so they tie a rock around the stomach to try to control the expansion of their stomach from gas when you're very hungry you, you know your stomach bloats up with gas so you're talking about real starvation and yet the Quran comes and says no this is a message it's not about negotiated settlements and agreements a divine message without its ethical core and backbone is no longer a message this is the biggest fallacy that Muslims have fallen in is that you are free to play politics and politics has no morality yeah we have a name for that and that's secularism immoral politics but if you want something counter to secularism principles ethics internal and external internal and external and so and the Quran is so decisive about this that it says that those who think that the the that it is up to the Prophet والسلام, to you know tweak things and those people hearkening back to what they have no they, they don't want to meet us is like saying you know what they, they it's not that they just don't want to meet us but means like we don't want to meet them hearkening back to what the Prophet said those who love to meet Allah it is like Allah telling you you know if you don't understand that your Islam is about these principles that become core and you will see that it even goes more than that in a second then don't think you can fool anyone by saying yeah you're among those who looks forward to meeting Allah for all of you who don't understand why is it that I am so critical of Muslim governments in Saudi and Emirat and Egypt and God knows everywhere because I don't see any any ethics I see Muslim governments as the most unethical governments on the face of this planet it is this because it is not Islam anymore Khalas. 
you know, you might as well be Buddhist. I don't know. Invent your own religion and call it Zanadu, whatever. But it is not Islam. It is not Islam. Okay. And of course, this is affirmed again in 18 that that when you fail to understand this, when you, in fact, take away from Islam kust, adl, even the, 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 the centrality of the divine rather than the ego, that is iftira that is, you are lying or you are uh, uh, projecting lies unto Allah. You are making up lies and attributing them to Allah, which is a grand sin. It's a kabira. I mean, you can't imagine a, a sin bigger than that. This is as big as shirk or as kufr or whatever. And that puts you in the status of al-Mujrimun. This is ayah number 17. Mujrimun who are outright offenders. I mean, grand sinners. Then, 18. وَيَعْبُدُونَ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ مَا لَا يَضُرُّهُمْ وَلَا يَنْفَعُهُمْ وَيَقُولُونَ هَؤُلَاءُ شُفَعَاءُنَا عِنْدَ اللَّهِ قُلْ أَتُنَبِّئُونَ اللَّهَ بِمَا لَا يَعْلَمُ مَا بِمَا لَا يَعْلَمُ فِي السَّمَاوَاتِ وَلَا فِي الْأَرْضِ سُبْحَانَهُ وَتَعَالَى عَمَّا يُشْرِكُونَ Now, of course, in traditional tafsir, they, they often say that this, this refers to the idols of Quraysh, that the, the Quraysh would say the idols are our interceders. They are just intercede for us on our behalf with God. But, of course, as Razi points out, that Quraysh didn't believe in a hereafter. So the idols were supposed to intercede in a very fake way. Because if there is no hereafter, so what are they interceding for? And again, as people like Zamakhshari or Razi point out that this is not just about Quraysh and its idols. And that those who learn that this type of discourse is about Quraysh and its idols do an, do an injustice to the Quran. Because anything that you believe is going to bail you out in the hereafter, despite your failure to stick to principles this ayah applies to you. So, if you simply count 
on on oh God is merciful, then your then your false god that will intercede you on your is your hopefulness. You're taking God for granted. If you think that oh I am powerful and rich and I donate a whole bunch of money, so it's okay if I am if I treat my ex-wife like garbage and I am unfair to my neighbors then your false interceding God is your money and your power. Now, here is where it really gets troubling for modern Muslims because they don't like to think that way. If you commit sin and you tell yourself, oh, it's okay because eventually I'll go to Hajj and Allah will forgive me, then yes, your interceding force, a false idol, is Hajj. So here, even God's law itself, if misused, can be a false idol. Anything that you are banking on to bail you out of living a principled life, like in the khutbah I gave Jum'ah, you know, I was noticing these people who are just, you know, living a very materialistic life and wearing revealing clothes, and they're supposed to be devout Muslims, and they're wearing mini jeeps and shorts and, you know, low-cut stuff, and, and, and so I asked, uh, you know, I, I ask people, what do you think is going on in their mind? And some friends said, well, what's going on in their mind is that they're thinking, well, you know, it's no big deal. Other people do much worse. Um, oh, you know, eventually when I grow up, I'll go to Hajj and God will forgive me. Oh, you know, it's okay. I'm a good person. I donate a lot of money, so it's okay if I do that. That's precisely what... The, 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 the deficiency of Iman is when you count on something bailing you out, when you consciously and knowingly did what is haram. And the Shreik Khaled Abul Fadl is a liberal. Do I sound like a liberal to you? Then, transition with me to 19. So this is 19. And you pause and say, well, wait, what is the relationship between what we're talking about harm and the relationship between harm and iman and the failure to construct your iman on the commitment to the divine command and 
suddenly then we're talking about that people were a single ummah but then they disagreed and if God would have willed God would have kept them all together this what's the continuity here and I submit to you that the continuity is very obvious what Allah is saying is human beings were a single ummah meaning that they all had when their needs and their experiences and their texts and their prophets were singular and unified there were no differences between them but with sophistication i.e. with differences in experiences with differences in prophets with differences because every ummah gets its messenger but the messenger if the messenger comes with a kalama kalimat wah with a revealed text then human beings start disagreeing about the meaning of the text if they get different prophets then human beings disagree about my prophet your prophet if they get the same prophet but they have different languages and different cultural experiences then they disagree about the different cultural experiences and different languages now Allah comes and says well don't think that this is unintentional because if Allah would have willed this wouldn't have happened but in fact that is the sunnah of Allah in creation difference now why is it mentioned here for a very simple reason because what is the thing that agnostics rely on to be agnostic well there's so many religions so many systems of belief so many different this and that so none of them can be true so I'll just be an agnostic this is precisely the response yes there are differences but don't let the existence of differences lead you into the confusion of believing that there is no truth because there are differences just because Allah allowed for the color gray to exist it doesn't mean there is no black and white and just because Allah allowed people to differ it doesn't mean that there is no justice and there are no principles 
So the challenge is to anchor yourself in truth this, in spite of God's will that humans have the freedom to disagree. Now, in the Muslim tradition, they went even because when Muslims were, were more advanced civilizationally and more mature civilizationally, they understood things at a deeper level than we understand them. And so in Muslim texts, they often say that if that part of Allah's Sunnah is that human beings will follow different awliya, that some will follow this wali, waliullah, others will follow that waliullah, third will follow that waliullah, and that, or fuqaha, same. And that that is part of the natural order of things. All the awliya and all the fuqaha must have a core truth that is invariable. But the variation and the ability of people to exercise choice is in fact a form of, in, in one statement, it's not a hadith, but a, 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 um, a, a an inherited wise statement, it's described as a rahmah, as, as a mercy, and in others it's described as a form of ihsan, as a form of divine blessing. But the challenge is that diversity can never become an excuse for hedonism. Now, in 20, وَيَقُلُونَ لَوْلَا أُنزِلَ عَلَيْهِ آيَةً مِنْ رَبِّهِ فَقُلْ إِنَّمَا الْغَيْبُ لِلَّهِ فَانْتَظِرُوا إِنِّي مَعَكُمْ مِنَ الْمُنْتَظِرُونَ In 20 where now it addresses a common claim by the Meccans vis-à-vis -vis the Prophet and it's simply that they say, well, you know, if only some decisive proof comes down with the Prophet Muhammad. Just keep in mind the statement that that statement well okay wait for I am going to wait with you. Why? Because this will come back at the end of Surah Yunus. And the significance of this, you don't really understand or appreciate the significance of this until after the revelation of Surah Hud 
and Surah Yusuf, and then understanding what happens later in history. It's okay, the Kuffar is saying to Prophet Muhammad, you, you have no proof. Many people think that the answer is, well, yeah, but, you know, it's the, the Prophet Muhammad doesn't have a, one of the biblical miracles. But the, 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 the more accurate answer is the proof of the truth of the Prophet Muhammad only becomes evident if you understand the revelation and the way history unfolded. Because in Surah Yunus and Surah Hud and Surah Yusuf is a precise prediction of the miraculous, and that's the Prophet's ultimate victory. Something that was unthinkable at the time that the sore are revealed. But when you understand what the sore are saying, and then you look at what happened, and you say, wow, Mecca got their answer. They, they wanted an ayah? Well, their ayah is what it told them will happen in the surah actually happened. And Mecca, as in the tribe of Quraysh, the way it used to be, is no more. It is so easy for us to, free, to, to, to miss this point. But if look at how hard it is for anyone to get um, to, to, to get I mean, I don't want to sound um, but how difficult it is for uh, once Arabs drifted away from Islam to get Arabs to accomplish anything. One, without Islam, what have Arabs accomplished? Absolutely nothing. But the true miracle is precisely that. Is that you take the least likely people to accomplish and they in fact accomplish because of the divine miracle. Oh no, I, I know I, I'm an Arab, so I mean, I have no shame in saying that. I'm not one of these Egyptians who will say I'm a pharaonic, I'm not Arab. No, I'm an Arab. There are no pharaohs anymore. They're gone. If Egyptians only would grow up and realize that. By the way, Egyptians have been Arabs for a very long time, long before Islam came. But they, they of course, liked them. 
think that there's something such as Emily. Um, okay. So just keep to 20 in mind. Someone told me that in one of the times I was um, hallucinating in pain, I apparently hallucinated about the burden of Surat Yunus. And now I understand why I hallucinated about that. Because, um, yeah, it weighs. It... I mean, there are other sort of that are this heavy, but but it's, I can't I can't skip anything. That's the problem. Is I can't skip ayat and say, okay, well, there's nothing to add here, and that's the challenge. So I I think we'll we'll, we'll go to the latest is ten, and then we'll have to pick it up on Tuesday. It, it just there's no way I'm gonna finish Surah Tunis tonight. I'm sorry. Okay, so let's go now to 21. Okay, now, so then Allah takes us back to that core issue of dur, harm, of darra. And saying, Bringing us back to that to that essential dynamic of the 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 um, what is that expression? The it means like flighty believers, uh, finicky, not finicky. Fair weather. Fair weather. Oh, fair weather believers. You know, they they, they what I call agnostics because of their because that's what Abdul Jabbar talks about. But it's the. There, you know, the the way that um, that that notice here in twenty one, وَإِذَا أَذَقْنَا النَّاسَ رَحْمَةً مِنْ بَعْضَ ضَرَّاءِ مَسَّتْهُمْ إِذَا لَهُمْ مَكْرٌ فِي آيَاتِنَا and again, here, the, the traditional tafsir will tell you, well, this has to do with the drought in Mecca, so on and so forth. But we've already talked about this. This is uh, 21. Um, that... Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Maghrib ends at 10? Huh? 10.07. 10.07? Mm -hmm. Well, can, can you well, well, can maybe end the quarter to 10 then? Okay. We'll end the quarter to 10 so we can pray Maghrib. Yeah, so anyway, um, that 
when people receive Allah's blessings, here expressed in the form of Rahmah, min ba'du darra, they are no longer under pressure. Pressure. Lahum makhrun fi ayatina. The study Quran translates this as it's probably going to translate it very literally again. Um, it says, a plot regarding our signs. Very literal, to the point that it doesn't have any meaning. A plot regarding our signs. Makrun fi ayatina. It's a profoundly eloquent way of saying they then they then start it's like manipulating their thought processes to avoid dealing with our ayat with with the way that we in fact communicate with them so it's like I am in hardship, my heart is open temporarily. Then I start receiving Allah's blessings. But when I start receiving Allah's blessings, makrun fi ayatina, and remember I said before that makr doesn't mean plotting. Makr doesn't mean plotting. Makr means uncharted or unplotted events that unfold. So makron fi ayatina, then they start dealing with our signs in ways that are not straightforward. So they start saying, well, ignoring that Allah is telling them now that you had the job that you always wanted or now that you I've cured you or now that I've given you the family that you want whatever it is they start thinking well you know I'm I deserve it I'm brilliant you know I'm accomplished well I studied hard well I work hard well I'm you know, or they start not noticing so before they might have noticed poor people that need things suddenly they're not they're no longer no longer noticing people in need before they might have paid attention to where other human beings are suffering suddenly now they don't pay attention anymore before they might have been empathetic their views, and this is very common, by the way, where I used to practice immigration law a long time ago, and one of the things I used to notice is that um, before people would get their immigration papers and citizenship, they're very empathetic to the problems of immigrants. And then I would notice that, you know, they become citizens for a few years, and suddenly they're hardline about other immigrants. And I would always think to myself, makrun fi ayatina. You know, how, how pathetic. It didn't even take that long. 
um, now that you're on the safe side, and that's what makrum fi ayatina means. It's not that you're sitting plotting against God. It means that you are, in a word, unethical, not straightforward, because you, 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 your, your sense of right and wrong, and your empathies, your observances, your intellectual processes, shift because your interests shifted. So you're precisely that human being that Allah is talking about, who calls upon Allah lying down and walking and sleeping when they need something. But once they get it, eh, well, God is most forgiving. Well, you know, what, am I supposed to give everything to I have, you know, well, you know, I work very hard for what I have. I take you back again and say, why Muslims who are, pers these are Muslims who stuck with the Prophet ﷺ after the Isra, who passed the hard test. And instead of telling them, okay, you know, Allah, just don't wait. Don't worry, when you die, Allah will give you versions in heaven and give you everything. It comes and challenges them and says, well, yeah, congratulations for passing the test, but remember, so many people are with God without principles. And don't you dare be among those who are finicky and who will remember God when it's convenient and when it's not convenient for him. And this is to people who are just about to face or in fact started facing severe persecution. Why am I saying this? For the, the Muslims that I feel sorry for who again influenced by Islamophobia and influenced by Orientalists I can't tell you how many Muslims write me, but, you know, isn't it true that, you know, I've heard my professors say in my course, Introduction to Islam, that all the Quran said to, the reason people followed Muhammad is that, in Mecca, is that Muhammad promised them versions in heaven, and isn't it true that this is basically what, what the Quran did, it promised them versions in heaven, so they became Muslim and immigrated to Medina? Yeah, because our history and our story is narrated not by us, by, by the other. But if these poor Muslim kids understood the, the reality of things, they, you know, it's sad because you, you know, I'm not talking about the people here with me, I'm talking about the number of kids that I see them have a faith crisis because they took an introduction to Islam course, heard that, or because you know their evangelical friend told them this from the Islamophobic book that they were reading, 
and they're suddenly all discombobulated and torn apart and don't know and it's like oh i have doubts and i'm full of doubts and i don't know what to do with myself and it's really sad it just it it breaks my heart time again and the response to this which is unfortunately often translated as allah is the fastest of plotters which is a very unfortunate tra translation because the response to this is that if you are treating ayatullah in such an unprincipled fashion then don't forget that your fate your entire fate is in the hands of allah so and and what that precisely means is explained in the ayat in the verses that follow especially 23 so then in 22 Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says okay keep in mind that you are like an allegory the allegory are are those who traverse either on earth or in the sea and when they started receiving Allah's blessings they became jubilant and happy and content but they forget that the very nature of Allah's sunnah in kaum is that the calmness, the blessings turn into a tempest. And when the tempest comes, they become, they, they start going back and praying to Allah sincerely save us from this and we will be faithful and what is the response well and then when allah then saves them this is 23. when allah saves them it is not that they commit an injustice against allah what they commit what they do is then they commit injustices in this earth and notice here well, i'll come to this so what is the response to this innama baghyukum ala anfusikum people remember that the injustice that you commit is against yourself so while i don't know what is this fascination with allah is the fastest of plotters it's not that it's it, it will not talk about equals here 
It's not that they plot and then, uh, you know, it, it's not a chess game. It, it is, you're talking about like, you know, it's like saying an ant plots with, you know, a giant. You can just step on the ant and, and, and end it all. It is the, the, the muck itself is the muck that you are committing against yourself. When you live without principles or ethics, because ultimately the result of this type of Surat Yunus was once described um, I don't remember, I think it was Ibn Atai Sikandari who said Surat al-Nafs that it is the, the, the Surah out of psychology if you would translate it in our modern language that it is ultimately when you exist like that a person who responds only to stimulus of reward and fear and that's why also Ibn Arabi says Surah Yunus is that it is the, the beginning of elevation that when you exist responding only to stimulus and punishment like a, like an, a, a, like a, as we said like cattle and we said before then inevitably you will live in injustice you will live in corruption you will live in misery and the injustice and the corruption that you cause will befall against yourself and against fellow human beings. So, again, the core thing is that it is educating these Muslims who are about to go through persecution, who are, or persecution is going to escalate, who are about to start on a journey of building a civilization. It is all about principles, commitment. So much so, that I'm skipping ahead just for to, to maybe whet your appetite so inshallah you come back. Uh, <laughs> uh, is that the way that the, according to Surah Yunus, the way that the Prophet Nuh deals with harm is a very difficult standard that as a response to these these poor Muslims who get faced crisis because of Islamophobia 
Because what Surah Yunus ends up saying about Prophet Nuh is that he says, it is my obligation, if you're going to harm me, my Iman obligates me to say, go ahead and harm me. If you're going to kill me, go ahead and kill me. If you're going to torture me, go ahead and torture me. So, those who remained Muslim after Surah Yunus had to be hardcore believers, as you will see, because we were not even close to done. Um, what time is it now? Okay, uh, I'm just thinking whether we should. Oh. Um, one of the, 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 the segues, um, I just thought it's, it's interesting because um, Ibn Ajiba uh, says um, that among, and this is, uh, became unfortunately far more important in our day and age than, than even in his. He um, says that among the, the, the commenting on the same verses, he says that so many, the problem is that you, you see the problem in a, in a very different context, but so many of those who once dreamt of studying and learning they say, oh, if only we can study with this teacher. So it says, وَإِذَا <laughs> That he says that students come and they say, you know, we we will be very, we just want to learn with you or under you and so on. And once they receive the knowledge, the first thing they do is forget that the the debt of gratitude that they owe their teachers, um, and they pretend like. They, like as if they were born with this knowledge. Um, you know, of course I understand what Ibn Arajiba is talking about precisely because what is built on unethical foundations will remain unethical, even if it is knowledge. Allah will never bless an unethical enterprise. And in my view, because in modern Muslim culture, I mean, I'm not kidding, I'm not surprising anyone when I say that you talk to any, any person who is in any business and they'll say, oh, you know, I'd rather do business with non-Muslims than Muslims because doing business with Muslims is you know, they, they betray you, they stab you. And this problem is even more in our institutions of learning 
than in anything. The worst students that I that I can count on their lack of loyalty and gratitude are often Muslim students. And that's why precisely Allah does not bless our institutions. It has what, what is built on ethical foundations flowers into ethical products. What is unethically founded will never be blessed by Allah. Uh, what? Um, anyway, if Ibn Ajiba goes on talking about it, but okay. So this takes us. Uh, no, I don't want to go to twenty-six because that the Hosna was the other that's going to take us. Uh, um, that's one of the most. Okay, so. Come do the honors. <laughs> Close the proceedings. Grace is the official. Uh, it's not officially closed unless Grace comes and closes it. Master of Ceremonies. Master of Ceremonies. <laughs> so come do the Master of Ceremony deal. Okay. We only got to 26 after all of this. <laughs> it's okay because you were laying the ethical foundations. So oh, we'll fly the next time. <laughs> um, okay, well, this was absolutely amazing and um, riveting. And even though we only covered um, a very modest amount, but alhamdulillah, alhamdulillah. Um, so, okay, well, officially closing the ceremony. Thank you, everyone, for, for joining us. Come back, cliffhanger. Part two, I don't know. <laughs> and inshallah, if you have any questions um, for this section, at least just keep them for now. And then we, Write we will, them. Yeah, we will do um, inshallah Q&A next time. So um, on Tuesday, right? All right. Is Surah Tunis available for adoption? <gasps> oh my gosh. Is it? Actually, I'm not sure. We'll check. It's one, it's one of the core Surah in the Quran, people.